Welcome to The Grange Point, where we hang out and talk about the latest news in science technology and how they relate to your everyday life. This podcast is brought to you by the Young Scientists of Australia. We're a youth organisation aged 15 to 25 whose work is to promote science to the youth of Australia. Neural systems and how complex and intricate they are, from our brains to our guts. Now, things that happen in our gut can have a surprising influence on our brain. We also find out about how intricate the nervous system are in our GI tract and ways we can target specific proteins inside our brains to help prevent the spread of neurodegenerative diseases. Organs inside your body do a wide range of things, but when it comes down to it, many of them are just moving something from one place to another. Now this is important because that's how we carry our food from one location to another for processing, blood or through your body, you name it, even discharging of waste. But there's some parts of your body that are basically just hollow organs which have a layer of smooth muscle cells along them. Now, these are very, very common invertebrates, and the way in which these normally work is they get rhythmically excited, and this squeezes or pushes along, propagates through these series of contractions, fluid over some kind of distance. This could be everything from your lymphatic vessels to urethra to some even blood vessels and portal veins. Now, one interesting example of this muscle contraction mechanism is either intrinsic to the muscle cells themselves or by a set of cells like pacemakers which induce electrical rhythms to pulse and make that smooth muscle move and progress the informational fluid along. Now one organ inside your body, the GI tract, has a pretty unique structure. Now comparing it to all other smooth hollow muscle organs, it has something unusual inside of it. Its own independent nervous system, known as the enteric nervous system. Now, it's a complex network of two distinct ganglionated nerve plexuses, which have both excitatory and imagery motor neurons that connect to these smooth muscle cells and then have a big interconnecting branch of interneurons and a lot of sensory neurons. What this means is basically that the enteric nervous system is really complex and way different to the normal situation in often you find in a smooth muscle cell. It's got almost a nervous system that you'd expect in a really sophisticated part of your body, like say the brain or the spine. In fact, it really looks a lot like the nervous systems that you find inside your spine. And when you think about it, it makes sense for the GI tract to have this function. It's one of the key organs for your body to develop. In many ways, it needed to be developed before other parts of your body. And what's shown here is that it had its own independent development pathway or journey in evolutionary history. And that's exactly what some researchers from the Flinders University in Australia have published in the journal Nature Communications. The leader author in this paper is Professor Nick Spencer from Flinders University, along with a large list of collaborators in the lab. And they're investigating the ENS, the, the nervous system that we talked about, the enteric nervous system. And really, he posits that it's the first brain. It's likely evolved long before the brain, at least as we recognise and know it today, in humans. Because of its main function and its independent development, it seems so different for the rest of the body and other organs around it. Now, 
what they published in this paper was some new information about how all this web of thousands of neurons inside the ENS that communicates with each other, which is actually responsible for the muscle layers to contract to propel content through your GI tract, and how they actually work. The problem is, for a long time, this has been really not well understood. But thanks to some new techniques, they're actually able to image and understand this in way more detail than before. The problem was, they got more detail in their measurement technique. They used a recent technical advance from the lab, which enabled them to record the smooth muscle actual electrical activity along the full length of the colon. At the same time, they could correlate these electrical activities with dynamic changes in the colonic wall diameter during propulsion. Basically mapping out the roles, all the different types of neurons in the NS play, and how they work together in a coordinated function to propel and pulse all of the stuff along the colon. And the thing is, they even use the same neural circuit, the colon that is, which is activated during both propulsive and non-propulsive contractions. But basically this regulation circuit, which was driving this whole motion, is really way more complex than they anticipated. And when you compare it to other organs like lymphatic vessels or the portal vein, it's way more sophisticated web of neurons interacting with each other and the type of pulses that it even provides, this web of neurons of sensors and control and stretching ones, they're all doing a lot more complicated emotion than you see in other organs. It has synchronization of neural activity across large populations of neuron which is more in common with nervous systems of many vertebrate animals, as Spencer says. Which means what you actually got in your gut, in your GI tract, has much more in common with your spine and your brain than it does with the other organs around it. Which is why Professor Nick Spencer believes that it's likely to be the first brain, as in the first sophisticated neural system developed in your body. Now, this is some pretty interesting research from Flinders University to show how something as simple as your GI tract, something you probably don't give a lot of thought to as a highly processing power part of your body, is actually doing some really complicated work to try and keep you alive and functioning correctly, keeping you healthy and, and getting rid of all that waste out of your system. So the way to someone's heart may not be through their stomach, but there's certainly a lot of brain power happening in that stomach, or at least the ends of it. This paper was published in the journal Nature Communication with researchers from Flinders University here in Australia, including lead author Professor Nick Spencer. jokes and old sayings aside, there is actually a connection between our guts and our brains, which we're now beginning to have a deeper understanding of. Now, that's only come in recent years, but we now know that our gut microbiome has some pretty strange and surprising interrelationships with lots of things in our body. In fact, our gut microbiome influences way more than you might think, and some new research from UCLA, University of California, Los Angeles, published in the journal Cell Host and Microbe, dives into one of the connections between your gut microbes and, well, your cognitive ability. Now, what they were looking at in particular was trying to see if they could 
analyze and understand neural generation. Now, often you can end up in a condition where basically your brain's performance will get limited. Sometimes you can see this in aging, but it can also occur in many other circumstances. This type of cognitive impairment, which can happen through aging, but can also happen through neurological diseases or even other conditions. And that's what researchers like first author Christine Olson and other authors Alonso Inerez, Grace Young and a large list of contributors were trying to dive into by looking at mice. Now, in order to get some representative control groups and samples, they took some mice and they did some pretty not nice things to them. For starters, they gave them a keto diet. A ketogenic diet is one that's high in fat and low in carbohydrates. And then they also intermittently deprived them of oxygen. Now, the reason for this was to actually get the mice to develop a condition called hypoxia, which is a pretty good simulacrum or mimic of kind of cognitive impairment that you'd see from aging or a neurological disorder. It's a pretty good way to induce that for the purposes of a test. Now, why they were doing this was to, first off, build a baseline and to have something to compare before they turned their attention to studying the interrelationship between microbe that lives in the gut, bilofilla, and how it is connected to the hippocampus, region of your brain often involved in memory. Now, the researchers gave these mice this specific diet and others a standard diet. Then they basically, all of the mice, received reduced levels of oxygen for five days and then were given four days to recover. Now, this development condition basically means that some of these mice would have had their cognitive functions impaired, which is why they were then tested in a maze. When trying to find their way out of the maze, the mice on the keto diet, they made an average of 30% more errors than the mice given the standard diet. And that's a pretty big split. The range of difference between the groups was 25% to 75%. And that's a pretty big spread. So obviously that combination of low oxygen and the diet didn't really help. Now, of course, if you just varied their diet but didn't actually reduce the oxygen, then there was no real impact. That Really, it's the combination of the diet and the lack of oxygen that leads to problems. For all of those who have taken up a keto diet in the past, don't worry, you weren't damaging your brain. Unless, of course, you were also depriving yourself of oxygen. Now, what they did next was to try and study the microbiome. So they took this microbe that they were interested in, in particular, the bilophilia was worthier. And what they did was reduce the amount or basically deplete this microbiota first before actually changing the diet and exposing to oxygen. Now, why they did that was to see if they could have the same result by changing this particular microbe. And what they saw was pretty interesting. In the mice that had their microbiota depleted first, they made way less errors in the maze as opposed to the mice that were exposed to hypoxia and given the keto diet, but hadn't had their microbiota depleted first. Now, what this means is this, the bilophilia wadsworthia changes which genes are turned on or off in the hippocampus, and then the bacteria reduces normal cellular signaling inside the hippocampus. Now, it just basically disrupts hippocampal activity and cognitive behavior, pretty similar to how hypoxia and the ketogenic diet working together did which means that it's important to show not only the hippocampus' role in memory, but how actual microbiomes can be just as dangerous or damaging to your brain in the right settings than, well, let's say, 
not having the right food and then getting deprived of oxygen. So the right microbe in the wrong spot, well, can cause some pretty serious issues. But it shows that how these microbial species can affect behavioral changes in mice and other animals. So it's important to study specifically how these microbes can affect different parts of the brain and cause cellular changes that occur basically in response to microbes. And when it comes to cognitive impairment, well, it's a pretty big deal. So knowing how these microbes could affect or impair cognitive ability would also help us screen, diagnose, and enable early detection for cognitive impairment. But of course, once you find a mechanism and a linkage between this gut microbiome in a negative way, then it opens the door for other opportunities for going in a positive way as well for treatment. And that's certainly an area that researchers are trying to dive into next. Along with making better screening tools, it's also important to consider how we can also use that potentially to our advantage. So great research published in the journal Cell Host and Microbe about the connection between gut microbes and negative impacts on our brains, potentially. Lead author, Christine Olson. Now, speaking of neurodegeneration and degenerative diseases in the brain, one of the most common ones, of course, is diseases like Alzheimer's. Now, what we know about what happens in our brains as they get older is we start seeing this neuronal decay. And protecting against neuronal decay is a big deal because there's plenty of diseases out there that do pretty nasty things to our brain. And a lot of the time, it's related to the slow but steady accumulation of toxic peptide products, which ultimately lead to the death of neurons, such as beta amyloid plaques that cause Alzheimer's disease, to name a single example. And that's what researchers Katsura Asano, professor from Hiroshima University's Graduate School of Integrated Sciences for Life, but also at Kansas State University, have been diving into. Now, working together with a research team, which includes first author Shinkan Ranjit Singh, they published a paper on Cell Reports Journal where they investigated, these processes get out of whack. And this normal repair and reproduction mechanisms that we use to survive and combat diseases can lose its ability to focus and lead to actually toxic buildup inside our brains and ultimately neurodegenerative disorders. Now, normally cells translate and copy across the genetic material pretty rapidly with really good precision. And that enables them to reproduce repair damaged parts of your brain and generally just keep chugging along. But this, of course, can get interrupted. And when this happens, it doesn't work the way it expects it to do, well, you get busy up of gunk. These errant processes can just create like gunk as you would find clogging up a drive mechanism, especially around the neurons. Now, once this starts to get and take hold, this toxic byproducts and buildup can really throw the entire finely tuned system around your neurons all out of whack, which means that your repair mechanisms don't work, which leads to further damage and the cycle continues. This is what we see in neurodegenerative disorders such as Alzheimer's. And we know, for example, repeat associated non-org RAN translation is one of the mechanisms that can end up with building toxic byproducts basically inside your brain. 
how this happens is relatively straightforward. When replicating the genetic material, the cell will look for some order markers. These tell the brain and the neurons inside it where they should cut and process where they're making their copy of a specific protein, looking for the start and end bookmarks. The signal is typically OG, but RAND translation doesn't actually need that signal and can begin processing at really any other point. And the problem is, this RAND translation can end up copying bits of repeated genetic information that can then either be bad or get weird toxic buildup as a result of copying the wrong spots or copying out of sequence. Of course, this leads to this byproduct buildup of copying and pasting the wrong things a lot, which is what leads to then neurodegeneration. But it all comes back to the copying the pasting specific parts of proteins in the wrong spots at the wrong places. Now, taking advantage of the knowledge of translation, researchers were investigating whether or not they could try and investigate that regulation function. If they could find a regulatory protein, such as 5-MP, which can suppress RAN translation, well, that would also mean you'd be able to suppress the toxic repetition, copying, pasting of these peptide products. Basically, add more inhibitors to block this copy-paste function, well, then you might end up with less runaway toxic information being spread across the brain. Now, in a disease state, 5-MP is pretty much a protein that can potentially transform a healthy cell into a tumor cell. In a healthy state, 5-MP mimics a protein involved in regulating RAN translation. So 5-MP can be potentially pretty bad, but normally 5-MP is normally just a regulation mechanism for this copy-paste mechanism RAN translation. So the researchers use electron microscopes and direct modeling to look at the structure and the molecules present inside this protein prior to RIAM translation beginning. And what they found is that this 5-MP competes with proteins it mimics. And if it wins, it then reduces the RAN translation and as an effect also the toxic byproducts. So they took this idea and made some fruit flies where they messed around for want of a better term, with the production of this levels of 5-MP. And that they found by increasing the levels of 5-MP in flies that had been specifically engineered to have tremorataxia syndrome, a neurodegenerative disorder, the afflictive flies which had ramped levels of 5-MP actually had less toxicity and had their lifespans increased. And what this suggests is that basically the modulation of 5-MP levels, this particular protein inside the brains could be a viable therapeutic treatment method which enables basically slowing down this RAN translation to avoid basically copying and pasting all these toxic byproducts throughout the brain and really only doing what's needed. This could be a great method for enabling some way of actually having some type of treatment for neurodegenerative disorders and stopping the spread of them enabling the brain's normal repair and defense mechanisms time to catch up. There's some really interesting work published in the journal Self Reports from researchers from Hiroshima University and Kansas State University, which investigates ways to use protein manipulation to see if we can slow down the spread of neurodegenerative disorders and thus create a viable treatment pathway for many of these conditions. This has been the Young Scientists of Australia's podcast, Lagrange Point. 
from the connection between your gut and your brain, along with the way in which the gut has its own nervous system, and ways we can slow down the spread of neurodegenerative diseases with the right protein. Our ending theme was composed by Audio Head to ysa.org.au for more information about the Young Scientists of Australia.